You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, trade and technology, politics, security, and a lot more. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. All right, welcome everyone to uh, this podcast that we're doing in conjunction with a new AGI program. Uh, I'm Eric Langebacher, a senior fellow and the director of the Society, Culture and Politics program. I'm also here with Susanna Dieper, who is the director of programs and grants here at AGI. And we also have two of our participants from this new exchange program who I will introduce in a moment. But we're very excited about this program, which is entitled Building LGBTQ Plus Communities in Germany and the United States, Past, Present, and Future. This is going to be a three-year program with three different cohorts. We have our first cohort uh, that has already um, experienced the first uh, of two study tours. We always do one study tour in the United States and another one in Germany. And the tour that we just completed was in Florida, where we were able to visit the communities of Orlando, uh, Miami Beach, uh, as well as Fort Lauderdale and the city of Miami as well. So without further ado, let me briefly introduce our two uh, speakers today. First, we have Jen Beer, who is a queer rights activist from Germany focused on political education, empowerment, and community building. Jen holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science with a Modern Philosophy from the University of Heidelberg. They have built community structures in their hometown of Heidelberg and expanded them into a politically engaged network nationwide. Jen has led social media campaigns, written policy letters, engaged with politicians, and participated even in cabinet meetings. Uh, currently, in addition to community engagement, they are pursuing a master's in political science also from Heidelberg University with a graduation in 2025. And then we also have Wilfredo Hernandez, who's with Communitas Arts and Culture, LLC. Uh, he is a cultural producer, interdisciplinary art artist and consultant with over 20 years of experience in nonprofit arts leadership and producing. Uh, he's the founder and CEO of Communitas Arts and Culture, as well as the founder and executive producing director of the Drag Arts Oral History Project, which is a new multimedia social impact project that documents the lived experiences, artistry and histories of drag artists in Philadelphia and beyond. Um, he has a master's of arts in producing and directing theater from NYU. Uh, he completed the Philadelphia Mayor's Office on LGBT Affairs, LGBTQ Leadership Program, and also serves on the board of directors of the Philadelphia Cultural Fund. So welcome, Wilfredo and Jen. Uh, we're going to jump right into um, uh, uh, the content of this uh, podcast, uh, starting with some reflections on the exchange trip to Florida where we'll talk in particular about public art as a means of testimony, witnessing, and remembering. So we'll start with Jen, uh, the floor is yours. I mean, now it's a little while back that we have been in America. So, or at least I was in America and had some time to reflect on, and it definitely was a very intense time. I mean, all the opportunities we had to um, interact with the community, interacting with the queer history that is very flourishing, very, very rich in America, like um, the Stonewall Stone Archive, all the 
engaging um, LGBTQAI groups and people that are they're very active and see themselves as part of um, often history and rich history and also want to take part as, as a very um, colorful future hopefully. Um, it was really beautiful to be there, really, really great to meet all the people locally and all the other participants. I, I'm very happy to made, uh, have made some connections and some future projects I'm planning. And thank you very much that I could participate. Well, we're, we're so happy you're, you're part of our first cohort. Uh, Wilfredo? Uh, ditto to that, Eric. So happy to have met you, Jen, and uh, to the rest of the group. Uh, fantastic cohort. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm equally filled with um, a lot of gratitude. Uh, sometimes an overwhelming sense of it when I remember, uh, like Jen said, even just a few short weeks ago, we had a holiday here in the states in between, and uh, and the onset of winter. Um, so I've uh, been looking back at the pictures a lot and uh, keeping keeping track of the conversations in our WhatsApp chat group and it's uh, everyone's still very connected and I, I feel like we're we're processing still in a lot of different ways. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me on this trip um, and uh, it was Jen's idea for this conversation to begin with so I'm really happy that we could have it about art and memory um uh art was everywhere it was in the streets it was on the walls of buildings murals uh it, it, and you know it it celebrated and uplifted the stories and the struggles in different different ways um so uh i think being in a cohort uh, a very intentional kind of space uh helped us to slow down from the everyday, you know, lives that we lead. And I feel like we were able to really perceive our surroundings a little bit more and take that in a little bit more. So I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity and to AGI for that. So thank you. Maybe delving down a little a bit more deeply into some of the things that we experienced and saw when we were on the Florida trip. Um, I thought I would bring up what for me was probably the most impactful site that we had visited which was the interim memorial to the Pulse nightclub shooting, uh, where 49 people were murdered. I think another 50 people were pretty severely injured. And then there were many others uh, as well. Uh, that took place about six or seven years ago uh, at this point. And um, well, anyway, we visited the interim memorial. It's an excellent example of the uh, ways that people are trying to commemorate such a horrible, and traumatic tragedy. Um, so we talked about history before, and this is an unfortunate example of the very negative experiences that so many folks in the LGBTQ plus community have uh, kind of dealt with. And then just one kind of other observation for myself, I got the impression that with almost everybody that we spoke to in uh, Orlando, that this trauma is still lingering there. It still is, at the back or the front of their minds, we went to this one place called the center and we talked to the director there. I mean, first I couldn't believe how much they actually do for the community, youth groups, uh, senior groups, uh, mental health and um, general health counseling, just to name a few of the things that they do. But uh, they also have 
a mural on the side of their building that commemorates the victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting. And he also mentioned that, I think he said that, that he still has at least 100 people, uh, relatives, survivors, uh, stakeholders, uh, who still do need kind of help and support to, to deal with and process the tragedy. But um, well, anyway, I have more thoughts on, on the interim memorial, but uh, let's hear from uh, Jen uh, and then Wilfredo about uh, their reactions and thoughts about the memorial. In May, it was really intense for me to be honest, because in Heidelberg, we are currently also building an LGBTQAA center, um, which will start open um, at the beginning of next year. And while being at, uh, at the Pulse, um, the former Pulse Club, the uh, currently um, memorials, uh, interims and memorial station, I always was thinking, okay, that's that's um an actual threat that that's currently always lingering. I mean, a few weeks ago there was a shooting some uh, somewhere in Berlin, not a um, not a shooting but an attack. There were other LGBTQ centers that were attacked in Barcelona, for example. And I'm always thinking, okay, it's politically important that we have visible spaces for the community. Like every other community also needs their set, uh, places where they come together, where they can exchange knowledge, where they can have fun, where they uh, live the um, live out our own rituals, our own history, being present. But having such places like the Pulse Club as always an open place where such a text can happen. And talking about the centers I'm just mentioning, there will be children, there will be teenagers that they are maybe currently figuring out that they're queer, they're going there, they're not sure, their family maybe doesn't even know that they're queer yet. And how can could I save them? How could we make such places secure that they can be a safe place? And I'm always wondering, how can we do it? And what political actions need to be there? Because in, I think whenever such situations as shootings, as massacres are happening, it's a political problem because there's not the education that, um, that um, takes care that people are not becoming extremists to do such stuff, but also the lack of security and, and awareness of political institutions like the police. Uh, Wilfredo? Yeah, thank you, Jen. Um, <clears throat> similarly, I've been processing it's, um, uh, I remember the day it happened very vividly um, because it was Pride weekend and I was living in New York at the time. Uh, it was Brooklyn Pride. I was working for the LGBT uh, Center in Brooklyn at the time and immediately after uh, a few days after you know we started having meetings about um lockdown protocols and uh what to do if we were manning you know staffing the center alone um or if we received threats via email or phone or, or whatnot so um and again in new york uh, pride month in new york is is a spectacle in and of itself uh of honoring uh you know uh the history of the LGBT community, specifically through like the Stonewall lens. Um, and I remember going to a vigil uh, outside of the Stonewall in a few days after the shooting. And uh, I remember 
the LGBT center in New York having armed guards outside uh, for protection, right? They hired additional security. And so the atmosphere completely shifted and um, uh, put the community on on high alert. And I feel like, you know, we, we visited Florida at a very uh, tense time politically, uh, given the, the culture, the forefront, they're on the forefront of what uh, Americans might consider the culture war uh, in terms of uh, clamping down on uh, a whole number of issues and, and rights, uh, specifically of LGBTQ people, specifically of trans individuals. Um, but seeing the uh, seeing the state of the interim memorial really stuck with me. Uh, it was a rainy day when we when we made our way there. And I remember just hearing, because everyone was very silent, the group, there's 14, 15, 16, 16 17 of us. Uh, and I just remember the, the feet in the gravel in that driveway, walking around and everyone just being very silent and processing. Uh, and that that really lingers with me. Uh, Susanna, would you like to contribute? Yes, I I wanted to add to what Jen and Wilfred uh, have been saying, and the 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 visit had such an impact on our group. And even though we knew where we were going, we took the bus, the public bus, and we got off the bus and we were all talking and all of a sudden we're in front of the memorial and it was extremely impactful. And I think also it demonstrates the importance of, of memorial, memorials of this kind. The, the city of Orlando, I think, has come together because of the strategy. And even though it's been seven years, it happened in 2016, you can still see the evidence that the city of Orlando and its people have, have really come together. And uh, it's the, the memorial is called One Pulse Memorial and the city has taken over this, this a phrase and causes itself one Orlando in, in different places in the city, demonstrating that the city stands with the the victims and the survivors and the families of those who perished. I mean, um, uh, if I could share a couple of more thoughts, uh, my own kind of like personal reaction. I mean, I think as Wilfredo said, or Susanna, you know, we knew where we were going, but the impact of being at that place where this tragedy took took um, place really, really impacted me. I guess one of the things that I hadn't prepared myself for is that the building, the structure is still there. And what they've done is they've kind of put, I guess, fencing around the structure with a, a variety of, um, you know, very kind of like grassroots uh, memorials, pictures of, of, of the signs of solidarity that so many people in and outside of Orlando showed uh, the people. But the fact that the structure was there actually really deeply unsettled me. I, I felt like we were almost transgressing on kind of sacred ground. And it made me think because after other tragedies, this has also been something that was discussed. I mean, what do you do with the, the site of the tragedy? 
You know, I'm thinking of the Sandy Hook massacre up in Connecticut, and the decision was made just to bulldoze a school, build a memorial elsewhere. And for the first time, I maybe I thought I, I, I kind of get that. You know, one of the other things when we were discussing this within the group afterwards is I heard from more than a couple participants, well, you know, you got to let the community, you got to let the stakeholders, you got to let the the survivors and the loved ones of the victims kind of decide. But, you know, I, I think somebody mentioned to us that they did a survey of these folks and they found that opinion was literally divided 50-50 between whether the structure should be um, should be saved. I mean, it's also sat vacant for, what, uh, seven years now? So, you know, you'd have to do something to 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 preserve the building. So 50% of people thought that, but another 50% thought, no, it's time to get rid of the structure. And then whether the memorial will be on that site or somewhere else would also um, uh, be something to discuss. The other thing too, um, just to give our listeners a chance to to maybe um, visualize what we're talking about. And again, you kind of know this, but then when you see it, it, it hits you in a different way. So it's in a very kind of like light industrial area. There's like a Dunkin' Donuts across the street with a drive-in. There was a vape shop on the other side of the street. And then right adjacent to it was like an auto body shop, the tints windows. And again, I mean, maybe this is what people need to remember, but it was like literally in the midst of people's banal daily lives that this tragedy took place because the, the club happened to be situated there. And that's also something that kind of impacts you that you have to process, right? That this horrible, extreme tragedy took place in the midst of just banal daily things. And I don't know, it, it was something that I grappled with and, and tried to, to kind of process as well. Um, Jen, please. Maybe adding to that, I mean, memorials can have different functions and purposes depending on what are you about to memorialize. Like, do you want to highlight uh, the victims of such an attack? Or do you want um, to have a site where you can create a new identity, remember it, and maybe be um, a spot of education? And I wonder if that was maybe a question that we could have asked someone there, or that's a, a question for the community that wasn't answered yet. Do we want to just honor the, um, the, the victims, or do we want to create an identity, make it part of the American history and being visible, and maybe a source for political action moving on? Because safety at flight events, especially in Florida, talking about trans rights is an important topic that everyone in the entire world is hearing about. So, yeah, I wonder if that were questions they uh, they asked and thought about. Well, you actually bring up an excellent point, Jen, and that is the role of memorials in achieving uh, transitional justice. So I was wondering if you had a few more thoughts about um, that important function of memorials uh, and maybe provide a few uh, parallels or examples from the German context as well? Some, I would say, I mean, memorials have different functions like truth telling or documenting a specific human uh, rights violation, a place to mourn victims, 
um, offering symbolic reparations to honor the victims, um, symboli uh, symbolizing a community's or nation's commitment to values such as um, um, democracy and human rights. And that's an interesting question, especially in German uh, context, because I mean, everyone knows that Germany had the biggest impact on the genocide of Jewish people, but also has an racist past that's currently not as um, reflected on as it should be. Like talking about the Hanau killing 2017, that was, um, there were um, a shisha bar, or how do you call it, Kahoot? The smoking thing? Oh, it doesn't matter. It's um, it's a place where you go to um, smoke certain windpipes, to have some drinks, um, if you drink alcohol or other substances. And there was then someone storming this place and um, killing a, a lot of people that were of Turkish, Syrian descent, were um, have um, were Muslims. And it was a big, it's a big thing. How do we remember those people, especially as they tie in a racist history and a racist um, current current political environment we are in? And there's still not, um, there are still not memorials on it. There's a strong community advocating for it, but not political actions matching it for uh, like um making it a bigger part of the uh, school curriculum or having political education groups that take care that the knowledge is there so there may hopefully not be as many extremists in the future so yeah i think it's a, a same problem that there's not a political um incentive to take um to engage about it well, I'd like to turn to Wilfredo now and some of his thoughts on what we've been discussing. Um, and in particular, I mean, Jen just provided some parallels to um, some tragedies in Germany and the efforts or the lack thereof to address um, what happened. But um, it seems to me that, uh, at least in the United States, there's much more sensitization, much more acknowledgement of the need to commemorate and to memorialize and to do so in a in a more real and more diverse manner. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit about some of the larger things going on in the United States? Uh, sure, thanks, Eric. And thank you, Jen, um, for that insight. Um, you know, I think um, uh, being located in Philadelphia is also <laughs> interesting given uh, the history here. Uh, in 2026, the United States is going to be celebrating its 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, the writing. Um, so the city is kind of, uh, you know, and we're just coming out of an, a mayoral election and a new city council. Government is energized. Uh, there's a lot of money being poured into the efforts of um, memorializing, commemorating uh, this this very special uh, anniversary, and um, being uh, close to uh, grassroots organizations and having worked with you know artists and uh, mostly smaller independent companies, um, you know there is a sense of questioning: uh, are we are we ready to have a real conversation about the past two hundred and fifty years? 
uh, in this country and, and has the American, the ideals enshrined in that document, uh, uh, have they been realized for, for everyone, right? All Americans. So I think uh, it's a really interesting time to be here in a city that uh, um, in some ways kind of like officially relies on historical tourism and commemoration to drive, you know, local economy too. Um, you know, I'm thinking uh, of efforts and, and Eric, I mean, just some examples. I think a lot, you know, being a New Yorker too, and, and uh, my father uh, actually passed, uh, he was a sanitation worker for 21 years in New York and he passed uh, in 2019 due to what, it, what, what the government now calls 9-11 related illnesses. Um, and they put a plaque, they put his name up in the sanitation headquarters uh, a few years back, maybe a year or two ago, I can't remember now. But, uh, and that that brought a lot of closure to me and my family, just that that simple act of acknowledging and, and taking, uh, in some ways, a stance and some accountability uh, for, you know, for a whole group of folks who really have gone unnoticed and silenced in some way uh you know in the course of the, the that tragedy but i uh whenever i'm in new york i usually go down to the <clears throat> 9 11 memorial to pay my respects and there's you know there's something about i think like you were talking about earlier being proximate to the site um there's there's almost an energy shift but also what they've done you know with the surroundings to make it a more contemplative space um is you know is a is a way through art and through design and uh uh to tell a story you know um that's important uh uh to our history and i think that in philadelphia we have some folks uh who are doing amazing work and also you know nationally the mellon foundation i think it was last week just announced that they're committing in total 500 million dollars to I think it's called the monument uh, monument project. I don't I don't want to be misquoted, but it's a, it's a huge endeavor to really diversify and uh, the monument landscape across the across uh, the United States. Uh, this is coming off of the heels of uh, a, a group based here in Philadelphia who does uh, extraordinarily great work called Monument Lab. Uh, it's a studio uh, that that really studies and commissions new monuments. Uh, they just had some really interesting work on the on the mall uh, down in DC, uh, temporary installations. Uh, they conducted an audit back in, I think it was 2021, uh, in an effort to really understand the monument landscape, uh, which memorials are kind of included in um, uh, across the country. And overwhelmingly, if, uh, you can find the... Uh, the report on monumentlab.com. Uh, it's called the National Monument Audit. Uh, overwhelmingly, uh, Jen and I talked about this uh, once we decided we were going to work together on this podcast that uh, top 50 monuments, uh, number one is Abraham Lincoln, number two is George Washington, uh, and the list goes on and on. The, the list is overwhelmingly uh, white, male, um, I think to to their definition of monument, which uh, I don't have, uh, they define a monument as a statement of power and presence in public. Uh, they, I think, looked at over 48,000 records, public records, 
um, to uh, see who was represented and who was not in, in our nation's public history. So I think they're doing tremendous work to really shift the conversation and the public awareness and understanding. I think a lot of these things that we're talking about, whether it's a plaque or a statue, uh, or in the case of the Pulse uh, Interim Memorial, uh, a site for for paying respect, uh, they often go unnoticed in the course of our daily lives. Uh, you know, and I think that from an artistic perspective, there there's something also to monument building that, uh, for me personally, makes the thing feel bigger than myself. And so it's very easy to. Uh, Eric, maybe maybe you'll get the word right. I'm trying to think of is it uh, dehistoricize or de like depoliticize the the thing itself. Uh, and in Florida, uh, you know, um, I think what's happening right now politically, um, one pulse uh, most definitely uh, uh, deserves. Uh, consideration and deserves care and uh, it was great like Susanna brought up to see the city of Orlando step in and purchase the the land uh, that that the site is on to help further that development through a community focused lens you know but there's one more group that's doing incredible work I think they're, they're called kinfolk and they're really looking at monuments uh, and memorialization through a virtual space right that that by by their understanding and their proposition is ex more accessible to folks uh uh to see themselves and their their kinfolk their ancestors their legacies um and communities that typically aren't represented in the public monument landscape uh represented so i think they're doing fantastic work and they just actually uh uh, launched here in Philadelphia uh, to to great success. And so I think those are some things if people really are interested out there and learning more to keep an eye on in the United States context. So sorry, I know that was a mouthful. No, I, I was really taken by your your words about the importance of depoliticizing um, um, any kind of monument. But that that can be very difficult sometimes because there are so many perspectives. There are so many emotions there are so many positions that people can take. And that was also one of my other kind of takeaways from um, our time in Orlando and the inner memorial in particular. Uh, we've been we've been kind of alluding to stuff that, that has been going on. Uh, so maybe just to provide a few more details to our listeners. So there was a foundation called the One Pulse, One Pulse Foundation. I should say is, I think it is still in existence. And um, that was, I think, led by uh, the woman who was a co-owner of the nightclub. So she had donated the, the the land and the structure to the foundation. And then they engaged in, what, seven years of fundraising. And I think they raised, if memory serves, around six, six and a half million dollars for a permanent memorial. Uh, but just in the last weeks, um, right before we went to Orlando, actually, it seemed that that initiative was um, imploding uh, they had announced plans for a museum and memorial that would have cost $65 million, which people thought was would be very difficult to kind of realize. There were some controversial aspects to their plans, for instance, having a gift shop with many folks thinking that it was deeply inappropriate to try to commodify this kind of tragedy and people's grief and things like that. 
So that's when the city of Orlando stepped in and they, you know, basically forced the foundation to sell the the land and the structure to the city. And now they're going to start their own process, reaching out to community stakeholders to try to find the the, the best way forward for a more permanent kind of memorial. Um, I don't want to weigh too much into the different perspectives on what happened. Uh, but for me, uh, one of the takeaways is that it's always so fraught, challenging and difficult to find the right way forward. I mean, as Jen put it, there's so many different functions or goals that different kinds of memorials can serve, but that has to be determined through discourse and through, uh, frankly, the political process. Um, you know, the aesthetics, the size, the location, all those things just kind of take a while. Um, you know, I'm reminded of two parallels here. First of all, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial here in Washington, D.C., uh, where Susanna and I are, which was a very kind of innovative design at the time. And it was hugely controversial, especially amongst Vietnam veterans. They thought it was too abstract. Um, it didn't um, figuratively represent the their experiences, the pain that, that, that they felt. Um, but now it has become, I think, rather beloved. I think it's a very powerful memorial and, and works really well. And then the other example that I'm thinking of is the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe in Berlin, which was first kind of mentioned as something to do back in 1989, and it didn't open until 2005. And some people have interpreted this long period of time as showing reluctance on the part of many Germans to, to have this uh, memorial. Um, I've always disagreed with that interpretation. When I look back at what happened and why it took so long uh, was because of how challenging this process is. They had several artistic competitions, for instance. They had um, a delay because the German parliament mandated that there should be a museum that goes with the memorial. And so halfway through the design process, they had to kind of reconfigure things. So I don't know if it's unfortunate or not, but it does take a while sometimes to get to where you know, the community wants to be when it comes to what an appropriate memorial would be. And that was one of my takeaways as well from, from um, Orlando. Uh, Susanna? I wanted to add that there was there is another memorial in Orlando that commemorates the victims of, of the, the massacre at the, the nightclub. And we went to see it after we heard about it from the director of the center, Orlando, and it was a, a much different experience from visiting the the actual interim museum, at, uh, I'm sorry, memorial at the nightclub. It was much more serene, it was landscaped, it was offered uh, time for reflection, and it was peaceful. And I think we all had a very different reaction to it. And it's interesting, you, you have to dig around to. Uh, on the internet to find it. And when you, it just demonstrates how difficult this, this whole process of, of memorizing a tragedy or, or a situation is. And so, yeah, I wanted to add that. Thank you. Well, I think that we are probably um, nearing the end of our time in this podcast, uh, but I'd love to hear from Jen and Wilfredo one more time. Maybe as last words, last sentence, I think there must be more memorials overall, especially if there are right-wing organizations worldwide 
um, where certain people want to dominate a narrative, uh, cling to a past that was better than the current um, world we are living in. And I think it's very important that every time a minority group or a stigmatized group or um, yeah, uh, feels structurally, systematically disadvantaged, need to be remembered and everything bad that's happening. So we keep in mind that it's happening. We can stay, uh, we see that it's a it's historical past to it. And we can, um, with this um, awareness, we may be more able, be more aware to change the current living situations or work for a better future. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Wilfredo? Sam, I couldn't agree more, <laughs> Jen. Uh, yeah, I, I also just want to say thank you and uh, shout out to all our other cohort members because uh, we really we really process this as a as a as a cohort and as a community and I think those conversations uh, I think we visited one pulse on our first day together like the first afternoon we were together and I think that really. Uh, fed and and touched our conversations throughout the week as we traveled uh, throughout Florida. And, you know, what we see happening there politically is is a very overt, not covert, <laughs> attempt to silence histories, right, and experiences um, that are fact-based and lived uh, and embodied uh, still. So I think... Um, uh, you know, the, the, the work never stops, right? And uh, it is up to, <clears throat> to us. And, you know, I'm, I take a lot of uh, um, inspiration and uh, encouragement from younger generations who are, who are fighting for, for the realization of these values in the world. Um, and uh, the activists and folks like we talked to on the trip who are, uh, uh, like we mentioned, the executive director at the center and and all the folks who are doing life-saving, life-changing work and are on the front lines of these issues day in and day out. And so I just want to say thank you to them. Thank you to my fellow cohort members. I can't wait to see you all in Cologne uh, in uh, 2024. So thank you, Eric. Thank you, Susanna. Thank you, Jack and AGI. Thanks for the experience. Susanna? Yeah, speaking of Cologne, that's where we will be going next in April 2024. And there is a memorial, actually, dedicated to the gay and lesbian victims of uh, the Nazi regime. It is dedicated in 1995, and it is also unnoticed, apparently. Nobody really knows it's there. It's relatively small, but it is it is in a prominent uh, place, and uh, we will be sure to visit when we go. Well, um, I have a, a few concluding thoughts as well. Um, first, big thanks to Wilfredo and Jen for taking the time to participate in this podcast today and also to the other participants on the program, which I think is just an exceptional group of folks from both uh, Germany and the United States. And I also think that this conversation today encapsulates exactly what we're trying to achieve in this particular exchange program, where we're really building LGBTQ plus communities. We're focusing on the past, the present, the future. The discussion about the Pulse Memorial is 
a perfect example of 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 what we try what we're trying to do, how we're trying to foster dialogue, um, and maybe come to some new realizations about how we can go forward in the most productive uh, manner. Um, I too am very um, keen to go to Cologne for our study tour there. I should also mention to our listeners that we have just opened up applications for the second year, our second cohort. Uh, we're looking to recruit seven folks from the United States and seven folks from Germany. So, um, you know, please think about applying if you're listening or um, letting folks know who might be interested in applying. In year two, I should note, we're going to go to New York and Munich. And then for the third and final year of this grant, uh, we'll go to Washington, D.C. and uh, Berlin. Uh, but we have amazing people. We're going to generate great content like this podcast. We'll have a couple of other articles to um, publish soon. Uh, so thanks for listening, everyone. And um, we look forward to having you participate in other AGI events in the immediate future. I guess I, I should also say happy holidays to everyone and uh, all the best for 2024 because, wow, this year's gone by quickly. And before you know it, it'll be a new year. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. You may know us under our old name, the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Send us your feedback by email at info at AICGS.org or on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we have new handles at A-M-G-E-R-I-N-S-T. And also please visit our website at AmericanGerman.Institute, formerly AICGS, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Thanks. Thanks.